All right, we are still on baptisms lesson one. Does anybody not have the part five lesson one outline? It'll say part five lesson one on the front. Does anybody not have that? Do you, I know you guys are new, so you... Yeah, okay. We're, we're through most of this, but I'll... Uh, <clears throat> all right. We're going to finish this today, Lord willing. We almost finished it last week, but... Okay, um, I want to take a little bit of a pause here because we don't have much to finish from last week's lesson. Um, I want to take a little bit of a pause, especially since we have some newer people in here. And I want to talk about why we're doing this, kind of set the foundation again for this, okay? All right. Um, what we've been doing, I'll kind of work backwards. What we've been doing in this lesson is we've been talking about the seven baptisms in the Bible. All right, so what is that all about? Well, let's back, let's back up. Um, whether you're new to this church first time or whether you've been here a little while or whether you've been here 30 years, there's something that we all need to understand and uh, hold, and that is that we have a final authority, and it's not a church council, and it's not uh, people's opinions and uh, other things. It's this book right here, okay? This is a King James Bible, and the final authority, the final word on everything comes from this book. It doesn't come from my opinions. It doesn't come from what I think. It doesn't come from a, uh, a, a consensus. It comes from this book. Our final authority is this book, okay? So uh, we see that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture, the words that God wrote down, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, so that means that this book is God's words, not man's words. Every, every comment that, oh, this is just a man's book, we were talking about this earlier, Jeff and Jeremy and I, every comment that this is man's words is a testimony that that person has never read it. You cannot sincerely read this book and think that man wrote it. I'll give you one reason right away. It runs contrary to every inclination of man. Everything that man does and wants to do the Bible runs completely the opposite way. How could a man possibly write that? He would write things that appeal to his nature and, and that agree with his philosophies. All right, so this is not man's book, it's God's book. Every, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. It's got some profit to it. For doctrine, and that's what we're doing in these classes, doctrine, what is taught, the truth that is taught. For reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect complete, finished, perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The only hope you and I have of being completed and fully ready to do what God wants us to do is to be in this book and letting it teach us doctrine, letting it reprove us, letting it correct us, and letting it equip us. But if this book is not our final authority, if it's one of our authorities, you're going to have a problem. If this book is an authority and your opinion is another authority, there's going to be a problem. If this book is your authority but a church teaching is also your authority, there's going to be a problem because now you have conflicting authorities. This has to be the bedrock upon which all answers are final and, and complete, okay? This is the final authority. I want you to look at one verse if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do. Isaiah chapter 8. <clears throat> so when we come to the Bible, I'm just going to give you a... a another statement about why this is the final authority. But the reason I'm saying this is because, okay, we have a book here that is supposed to be our final authority. 
Therefore, it's important that we are able to understand it. It needs to be understood correctly. All right? And that requires time. You need to input it into your, into your life. You need to personally take time to read it. You need to personally take time to study it. You need to come to classes like this and have it taught to you. Now, here's the thing. When I teach it to you, you don't say, well, Dave said this, and that must be true. You say, Dave said this according to the Scriptures. Does that follow in the Scriptures? If I say something contrary to this book, throw out what I say and believe what the book says. All right, it's, it's not me, I'm not the authority, the book is the authority. What I'm trying to do, what Pastor Schott tries to do and what Pastor Caleb tries to do is to point you to this book and guide you through the book and let the book speak to you. The book is the final authority. Look at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. Um, kind of coming in the middle of a context here, but follow. <clears throat> verse 19 of Isaiah chapter 8 says, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. We just went through that holiday. Shouldn't, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? What are they supposed to seek unto? Verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. Now, what's he talking about? Okay, so right now when Isaiah's being written, here's Isaiah in my, my Bible right here. From when Isaiah is being written, the law and the testimony are everything from the beginning of this book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way through to when Isaiah is speaking this by inspiration of God. There is the law and the testimony, God's words. They're supposed to seek to the law and to the testimony. Look at this in verse 20. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. I have nothing to tell you outside of this word. And you shouldn't accept any revelation outside of this book. All right? So the Bible is the final authority. That's the point I'm trying to make. And it's important. Okay, so we have a book that's our final authority. It's important that we know how to understand it. It's not a book of mysteries. It's not the Da Vinci Code. It's God's revelation to us, but it's only understandable by the Spirit of God in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says... The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. You wonder why certain people out in the world, you show them something clear in the Bible. Your good works aren't good enough to get you to please God. Over their heads. Why? Because they have no Spirit of God in them to testify to the truth of those words. Now, the Spirit of God can convict them through the Scriptures, but their understanding is darkened, the Bible says. Well, the Bible says, but uh, we can understand those things, the, the things that are given to us by the Spirit of God are freely given to us by the Spirit of God. And we have the mind of Christ. As Christians, we have that ability to understand it. Okay, so, all right, so we have a final authority. It's important that we are able to understand it. That starts by getting saved and getting the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. Um, and it needs to be, therefore, the Bible needs to be input. Reading it, studying it. And then look at 1 Timothy, and this is where we're going. Sorry, I know this is review for a lot of you, but I really want to set, establish this for people who haven't heard all the things that we've been teaching the last year. All right, so we have a book that we can trust as a final authority. We need to learn it, understand it. How do we do that? How do we correctly understand it? <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 2, near the end of your Bible there. 
right after the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. It's really great to have a book that gives me all the answers and is a final authority that cannot be questioned. But what good is it sitting on a shelf? What good is it if I don't know it? Therefore, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing what? The word of truth. So I'm supposed to study the word of truth. How do I study it? Rightly divide it. You say, what does that mean, rightly divide it? The Bible has divisions in it. The most obvious division is Old Testament, New Testament. Okay, um, and we're not going to we're not going to reteach that. But there's divisions, and the, the, those divisions, there's things that are different. Um, they're both testaments, but one's a testament before the cross of Christ, and one's a testament after. They're different. God fulfilled things that were not fulfilled in the Old Testament. He fulfilled them in the New Testament. There are things that are completed that weren't completed in the Old Testament that are completed in the New Testament. You have things in your Bible. Not everything in the Bible is the same. Uh, you have uh, things that, I mean, uh, well, let me put it this way. Everything in the Bible is there to teach you and I about God, what he expects of us, how God operates, the things like that, all right? But not everything in the Bible is a command to you and I, all right? And that's where you start learning how to rightly divide it. A silly example that I always use, but... I think it proves the point. What was Noah's job and command? Build an ark. Okay? If, <laughs> I hope none of you are trying to do that right now. All right? But Noah, if he wanted to be saved, and we're talking about physical salvation from a flood, he had to build a boat. You're not commanded to build a boat. I'm not commanded to build a boat. The people of Israel, here's a, here's a difference between Old Testament and New Testament. The people of Israel were told to offer sacrifices daily, monthly, yearly, over and over and over again. That was a command to the nation of Israel, and they were supposed to do it. Well, you and I aren't commanded to give sacrifices anymore. Why? Because the New Testament tells us that Christ fulfilled the law and finished once and for all the final sacrifice for sin. There's differences. We have to rightly divide it. I don't go back to the Old Testament and grab something out of Leviticus and start trying to be a priest in a temple with real sacrifices and real washings and real bread on the, sh on the table and real candles on the, on the other, opposite the table and an Ark of the Covenant. That's, that's not written to me. It's written for me to understand how God worked with his people and how that was going to become a fulfillment um, of what Jesus Christ did, but that's not to me. I have to rightly divide it. I am not commanded anymore to go, go after, to, do, to, to provide sacrifices to God. The New Testament tells me that was fulfilled in Christ. Rightly divide it. You're going to see some things in the Bible. For instance, the word judgment. It's not always the same type of judgment. There are, there are at least seven different types of judgment in the Bible. Someone says judgment, what are we talking about? Which one are we talking about? 
you've got to rightly divide which one it is. And the context will always tell you, once you, once you understand how to read the context, you'll, you'll, you'll learn what, what's the difference. I have to rightly divide it. If the Bible tells me to rightly divide it, that means that it can be wrongly divided. I can misapply it. I can use it. I can take something that is not written to me and try to apply it to me and make my, a big mess of my, my Christian life. So the scriptures, while they're our final authority, can be, um, you know, Peter says about Paul's writings, in which things are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, that W-R-E-S-T, they wrestle with it and they twist it, Bible says, unto their own destruction. The Bible is a book given by God, but if you come to it and just make it fit what you want it to say, or I make it fit what I think, you're wrestling with it and you're twisting it to your own destruction. The Bible stands, the words stand as they are, they mean what they say, but learn how to understand it by rightly dividing the different things in the Bible. There's different gospels in the Bible. There's four of them. If you just see gospel and run with it, you might run into some problems. All right, learn which ones they are. And what are we talking about these last few weeks? We're talking about baptisms, okay? Baptism in the Bible. There are seven. There are seven different baptisms. And it's very important to understand which one we're talking about. Um, we talked about a couple weeks ago, certain churches will take the particular baptism we're talking about and twist and rest it to say, you have to be baptized in water to have your sins washed away. By taking one baptism and saying it's another baptism. So it's very important that we rightly divide the word of truth and not misapply it. And that's, why, that's what we're doing here today. We're taking our final authority and learning how to understand it so that we don't rest it and twist it from it what it's supposed to mean. The best way to do that is to let the words stand as they are. Don't change the words. Search for the biblical meaning of that word. Search for the context of how that word is used and identify the differences and leave our bias and our denominational thoughts out of it and let the word of God speak for itself. And that's what I try to do when I teach these classes, okay? Now, um, so, so I don't know where everybody's coming from in, in, in this room, but I, I, one thing that I, I neglected to say right off the bat is, um, is this. One thing I can say unequivocally is that when the Bible is talking about baptism, no matter which baptism it is, number one, we are not talking about sprinkling. The word baptism means to immerse into Nowhere in the Bible do you find any place someone being sprinkled with water as far as a baptism is concerned. Number two, you never see an infant being baptized in the Bible. It's missing, okay? That is a doctrine of men. All right, now if, you, if, you, if that upsets you, I'm not trying to upset you, but I'm trying to tell you these things that are taught as doctrines are really traditions of men. What's our final authority? This book. Not me. It's not what I think. This book is. Search the scriptures. 
Find me where an infant, of any, any baptism that we talk about, find me an infant that's baptized. You can't find it. Find me where somebody has water sprinkled on them as a baptism. You can't find it. We're, t- we're talking about what the Bible says about baptisms. The word itself means to immerse. And every baptism, so here's a review for some of the people that haven't been here. Here's a review. We talked about a water baptism that John the Baptist did for Jews. We talked about a baptism with the Holy Ghost that God gave a spirit. He immersed them in a spirit, the spirit of God, at, the, at Pentecost and in other places. We talked about a baptism of fire where people who reject the spirit of God are immersed into fire. We, we talked about the baptism of suffering that Christ would suffer the wrath of God being poured out upon him as the Bible uses the term, all thy waves and thy billows passed over me, like being immersed in an ocean, a stormy ocean. God likens that to the wrath of God. That was Christ's sufferings. And now we're talking about a baptism by the Spirit of God into Christ. Let's, let's go there, and we're, gonna, we're going to uh, take this and launch. Is there, is there any question about what I just said? I really do not want to run past anything if someone does not have under, understanding. Okay, I, 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 this class is not an open forum, but I do want people, if you have a question, if you don't understand something, if you have a controversy, please raise your hand. Let me know. How did I know you were going to raise your hand, Jeff? <laughs> oh, I, just, I felt two verses, Yes. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, and uh, I taught that way back about almost two years ago now. Um, God magnified this book, the written scriptures, above his own name. All right, so don't take this thing lightly. It's the preserved words of God, not the preserved ideas of God, not the preserved concepts of God, the preserved words of God. And when you believe the words are there on purpose, you will get this book unlocked to you like you never had it unlocked. You start changing the words to mean what you think they mean, okay, you'll make a disaster um, of, of it. All right, so what we're talking about, where uh, some of you just got the outline, I, Okay, really quick, for those of you got the, that got the new out, the outline just today, look at the opening of the outline. <clears throat> letter, uh, point number five, letter, the V there. What, by what means do we get into Christ? Really quickly, because I want to. I got to finish this today. I got to finish this today. All right. This is the baptism by the Holy Ghost into Christ. Those are the fill in the blanks there. Okay. It answers our three questions. Who is baptizing? It, it's the Spirit of God. If you if you're in First Corinthians, did I tell you to turn First Corinthians twelve? First Corinthians twelve. This is our text verse for this. First Corinthians twelve, verse thirteen. I know this is a lot of review for those of you who have been here this whole time, but I don't want to leave people in the dust. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 says, 
Right before that, it says the body is Christ in verse 12. We are many members being one body, are, are being many are one body, so also is Christ. Verse 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. All right? Who is baptizing? It's the Spirit of God by one spirit. Who is being baptized? We all. And we've reiterated this through the different points we've been making. It's those who are saved, born again believers, children of God, we saw in Galatians chapter. Uh, Three. I always forget which chapter that is. All right, into what are we baptized? All right, we don't just make this water. What are we baptized into? One body, which verse 12 says is Christ. We're baptized into a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. All right, don't have time to reteach all this. Things to note it's done by the Spirit of God, not a pastor, not an elder, not a priest. It's a spiritual baptism. All right, we identify the group as all that call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Letter C, therefore it is a spiritual baptism into a spiritual entity, which is the body of Christ, which is called, in Ephesians chapter 1, the church. Letter D says there are at least six references to this particular baptism in Scripture. All right, and we talked about some ways this is misunderstood or misused, mis mis misapplied. The Church of Christ tells you this means water baptism. There's no water anywhere in sight of this verse. The baptism is into a body, a spiritual body. All right, letter B. Some other people take this reference to the, when they see it in the scriptures, these six references, and they just say it's water baptism, but then it doesn't really fit their theology to take it out to the nth degree, so they make the whole passage figurative. That's also a mistake. Letter C. Sometimes, and this is just a minor thing, but they I've heard this baptism confused with the baptism with the Holy Ghost, which happened in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10. This term here is the baptism by the Holy Ghost. One, you were baptized into the Spirit. One, you're baptized by the Spirit. All right? Here's the identifying factor. How do I know which baptism we're talking about? If the baptism you're reading about credits the believer with something, that's letter uh, number four there, if the baptism in question credits the believer with something, it gives to the believer something, then it's most likely speaking about this baptism, the baptism by the Spirit of God, which puts a believer into the body of Christ. All right? Last week, we're moving fast, but last week we talked about Galatians 3.27, that passage. Turn there really quick, really quick. We're going to do this quick, and I'm just going to... We only have a little bit left of the outline, so don't worry. I'm just going to wrap it up today. Galatians 3. Here's another reference to this baptism. <clears throat> Look at verse 26. Have I lost anybody yet? Okay. Galatians 3, 26. For ye are all the children of God, how? By faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 27. For as many of you... Who's that? The children of God. For as many of you as have been baptized, excuse me, for as, many, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, all right? So that, that one answers two questions, you being children of God and into Christ being who they're baptized into. It doesn't tell you who does the baptize, baptizing in this passage. But looking at the context of Galatians chapter 3, over and over and over again, it contrasts faith with works, faith with the law. And he says, faith can do this for you, but the law can't. 
faith can do this for you, but works of the flesh cannot. And so when we end up at verse 27, and we talk about this baptism, all of a sudden he says, you get into Christ by this baptism. After he spent the whole chapter saying, a work can't get you into Christ, a work can't do anything for you, why would a work be able to get you into Christ? It's a spiritual thing like faith is spiritual. And we, we know that, that we know therefore that this baptism, not only because it says we're going into, it's baptizing us into Christ, it's a, Christ is not water, Christ is Christ. The body of Christ, the church, you're baptized into that church by that spiritual baptism, okay? We ended up on Colossians last week, Colossians chapter 2. And I feel like, I feel like last week we got kind of deep into this thing. Um, and I'm trying to make this as useful to everybody and not just um, talk over everybody's heads. But um, last week we looked at Colossians chapter 2. The reference to this baptism is in verse 12. All right? Paul says in verse 5 that, um, sorry, the, the, the points in letter B, I didn't go into that. Number one, two of the three questions are answered. Who? It's you the children of God, and into what? Christ. Number two under letter B, faith is mentioned 14 times in this chapter, and it's contrasted with works, which letter A cannot give you these things. Letter B, but will put you under a curse. And then number three says, therefore, how could this baptism be a work done by us in the flesh rather than a work done by the Spirit of God by faith? And we looked at the... um, the benefits of this baptism, it connects us through Christ to the spiritual blessings obtained through Abraham. And we looked about that makes us part of the seed of Abraham. Uh, The spiritual seed, okay, not the physical seed. Christ is the seed of Abraham according to Colossians chapter 3. All right, Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 5. Paul says, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit. How could Paul be absent and with them at the same time? How is Paul absent and yet with them? Because they're both in the same body of Christ. Spiritually, they are together. Some people get hung up on this, well, you know, local churches are separated, so they're, they're, they can't have, it, it, local church is the, is the church that God's talking about. Yeah, but you're all in the same spiritual body. You're all connected. There, there's, there's, no, there's no divisions in the body of Christ. Everybody's in the same body, the spiritual body. Even if I got a church here and a church down in Ledger and a church up in Windsor, we're all connected by that same spirit of God and by being in the same body, all right? So Paul says he's absent, but I'm with you because they're in the same body. And how did he, how did he get, if you look through chapter 2, you see in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him, over and over, over again. Number two, Paul uses that phrase in Christ. How did we get into Christ? 1 Corinthians 12, 13, how do we get into Christ? What was the mechanism by which we got into Christ? Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13 again. How did I get into Christ? How did I get into that one body? I heard someone say, by the Spirit, and what did he do? This is not a trick question. He baptized you. How did you get into Christ? You were put in there by the Spirit of God. You were baptized into that Spirit. Paul over and over again says in Colossians 2, 
In him, we have this. In Christ, we have that. In him, we have this. We went through over uh, 30 things that we have benefits by being in Christ a couple weeks ago. How did I get in Christ? The Spirit of God took me and placed me there. And it's called a baptism because I was put into something. Do you see, do you see it? Do you, do you see it or am I confusing everybody? The Spirit of God took me and took you, if you're saved, and placed me into a spiritual body, into Christ. I'm actually in Christ. Um, and that's, it's, it, the mechanism is the baptism by the Spirit of God into that. Okay. Now, this is where we left off last week, and of course I have five minutes left to do this. Wonderful. Okay. <laughs> We're going to do this, though. All right. We talked about last week the circumcision made without hands. It's a spiritual circumcision. We are separated. That We have a spirit, a soul, and a body. The body, this flesh, was separated from my spirit and soul and put away. Those two things were separated, and yet we're still together and walking around in the same area. But in God's view, spiritually, they are no longer connected. My body still likes to sin and does sin. My spirit and soul cannot sin. Why? Because I'm in Christ. All right? So now think about this. When he says the spirit and soul are separated from the body of the sins of the flesh that you see in verse 11, we put off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also, where, what is it, wherein what? In baptism, ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Look at this. Remember what I said, how do you identify which baptism we're talking about? If you're credited with something. What am I credited with in verse 12? Exactly what it says. What am I credited with? You said it. You're buried with him. What else? You're risen with him. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Well, hold your, hold your hand there. But keep, get 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and hold it there. All right, so I'm credited with two things in, in verse 12. I'm buried with him in baptism. Now, it's not very clear immediately what baptism we're talking about, but there is a baptism that allows me to be buried with Christ. We're going to see why that's necessary in a second. And there's, in that same baptism, he says, wherein also, in that same baptism, I, we are risen with him. Through what? The faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Okay, number three, there are two things credited to the believer in this verse, being buried with him and being risen with him. And it's through faith that should give you a clue that this is not a physical thing. All right, look at verse 13. This kind of doubles down a part of this. So I'm buried with him in baptism, wherein also I'm risen with him, verse 13, and you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, when was that? When, was, when were you and I dead in, 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 my, in my sins, in our sins? When was that? When we were lost. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. He made you alive. You were dead, but he made you alive. So in verse 13 he says, And you being dead, past tense, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened. Okay, that's great. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us, 
we were made alive, we were dead, and we were made alive, made alive, how? With him. With who? Christ. How was I made alive with Christ? When was Christ made alive? Not a trick question. When he rose from the dead. And what did verse 12 said you were credited with? You were buried with him by the baptism, and you're risen with him by that baptism. Now, this is the cool thing. All right? Uh, well, okay. So, verse 13 says, We are quickened together with him. What's the result? Verse 13, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him. Result, having forgiven you all trespasses. That's the result of being buried with him in baptism, risen with him in baptism. In other words, quickened together with him. The result is having forgiven you all trespasses. Here's the caveat. Not the caveat. Here's the, here's the, the, the cap, okay? Verse uh, number five in the outline. If we say that the baptism of verse 12 is water baptism, you must of necessity say that it forgives you your trespasses because of it. And that is absolutely incorrect. You're buried with him in baptism and you're risen with him in baptism. What's that talking about? Look at 1 Corinthians 15. What's my problem? Oh, I got a lot of problems. What's my problem before I was saved? The main issue between you and I, what was our problem before we were saved? Who said, who said it? There was two S words, but the short one. Sin. What's the wages of sin? To pay for sin, my sin, I have to die. And yet, how can I have eternal life if I have to die for my sin? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, Paul says. What did he deliver? What did he receive? How that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Let me stop right there. All right. What's the wages of sin? It requires death. Okay, so Christ died for our sins. I kind of get that. It's a substitutionary. Christ died for my sins. The Bible says that our sin was placed upon him. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He was made to be sin for us. Okay, so Christ died for my sins. Isaiah 53 says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Okay, substitutionary. I get it. Christ died for my sins. All right. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, verse 4, and that he was what? Buried, and that he what? rose again the third day. Follow me with this. Someone told you the gospel, this right here, that Christ died for your sins, that he was buried and rose again, and that by believing and trusting that, you could be saved and have eternal life. You believed that gospel from your heart. A bunch of things happened to you, and one thing that happened to you was the baptism by the Spirit of God into Christ. You were placed into Christ. And now, in Christ, God looks back and says, Christ died for our sins. Oh, look, George Kai is in Christ. George Kai has died for sins. 
he's credited with the death of Christ because he's in Christ. Do you see it? He got put into Christ and got credited with what Christ did because he's in Christ. That, that, that looks like it stumped a lot of you people. Did, did I lose you with that one? Do you, do you see it? Christ died. What, what did Colossians 2 say? Christ died. Okay, so I, I should, have, should not have wandered from that. If you still have Colossians 2. Sorry. Oh, man, I apologize. We're going to finish this, though. Okay. Colossians 2, verse 12. Buried with him in baptism. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and was buried. How was I buried with him? I'm in him. That burying and that death are, are credited to me, are credited to you if you're saved. Colossians 2, 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also, in that same baptism, ye are risen with him. What's the rest of the gospel? And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. You are in Christ, so the death of Christ, you being in him, credits you with having died for sins. And the payment for sin is, is fulfilled. Not in you, in Christ, because you're in Christ. You're buried with him. And you're risen again with him. Why do you have eternal life? Because you're in the one who is eternal life. Uh, First, uh, First John chapter 5 says about Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. He is eternal life. You're in him, you have eternal life. Do you see the baptism? The gospel says that Christ died for our sins and rose again, yet we are credited with that dying for sins, being buried and rose again by being in Christ. Do you see that? I feel like I lost you guys on that one. Do you see that? We're credited with that, okay? Now, here's the thing I want to leave, leave you with. We are credited, the necessity is that sin is paid for by death, and yet we need to have eternal life, so somehow we've got to have death and life in the same thing. So Christ died and rose again, both paid for sins and gained eternal life. He is eternal life. You trusted the gospel. God puts you into Christ. You have died, and you have risen again, and you have all that credited to you, and I have all that credited to me. Here's the thing. And we're going to get to this later when we talk about believer's baptism. But believer's baptism in water, that's what that is a picture of. You are buried with Christ, died and buried. The man goes down under the water, immersed, buried. Sins are paid for by the death of Christ. He comes back up out of the water. He's risen with Christ. The water baptism that you see here is a picture of the spirit baptism into Christ. Credited with the, with the death of Christ and credited with the, uh, the eternal life that Christ has. So, sorry I went so long, but I wanted to finish that.